0: Jimmy's Table Hey everybody, you're listening to the Jimmy's Table podcast, Jimmy'sTable.com. I'm your host, Jimmy Humphrey, where I like to have conversations about faith, life, culture, and sometimes food. So today is episode 71, in which I want to talk about the controversial decision recently from Pastor John MacArthur of Grace Community Church in Sun Valley, California, who decided to defy the government orders of the state of California to shut down their church out of public health concerns associated with COVID-19. His 8,000-plus member congregation uh, instead decided to meet after three months of being shut down uh, in their large auditorium this past week, and they're continuing to hold services in spite of recent letters and threats from the government to cease and desist um, in regard to their meeting. Uh, their auditorium in which they meet at hosts several thousand people. My guess would be anywhere from three or four, thousand people at a time. Um, and Pastor MacArthur stated um, clearly and loudly that Jesus, not Caesar, is the head of the church. and that as such, um, if the church chooses to defy government orders um, in order to meet, Um, that it is free to do so because the choices with managing and running a church um, is outside the sphere of the authority of the state and uh, the church is free to govern itself in spite of the edicts of the state because as I said Jesus and not Caesar is the head of the church but this got me to thinking this got me to thinking about our current models of ministry Um, And how increasingly over the past couple centuries, especially that model of ministry, especially as seen here in America, increasingly involves centering the life and ministry of the church around that of one man. Um, And in my opinion, it's increasingly becoming something of a circus. So today's episode 71 in which I'm going to talk about how the church is not a circus. But before I do, I'd like to play this little clip um, from the now defunct Barnum and Bailey Circus as kind of a little bit of a source of inspiration. Ladies and gentlemen, children of all ages, the Feld family is proud to present Ringling Brothers and Barnum and Bailey. Welcome to the greatest show on earth. Now, I play that clip kind of tongue-in-cheek, sort of like, but I think there's kind of a truth to what I've (laughs) said by playing that clip, and there's very much in which our churches today have kind of become a circus, Um, and the models that we have today, if you were to compare them to the book of Acts, if you compare them to the writings of the Apostle Paul Uh, and the other apostles about how the church operated and functioned in its daily life and ministry, you would find that the current models that are very popular amongst many evangelical churches are quite at odds with the biblical record. Um, And I'd like to demonstrate that a little bit today, but before I do some of the biblical explanations of how the church should function and, and what it should look like more today, I want to talk about how we got our current model today. Our current model today is very much, like I said, kind of a one-man show sort of thing. Everything in the life of the church happens and centers around primarily that of the ministry of one individual, usually called the lead or senior pastor, in which the predominant vision-casting responsibilities and leadership and preaching and teaching pretty much all falls on the pastor. He's kind of a CEO-type figure, and he is very much... The heart of the local church, not only in small churches, um, but also large churches as well. And this probably becomes a little bit more evident in your larger churches because all of a sudden you have 5,000 people in an auditorium staring at some guy on a platform up front. Um, But it is something that exists even in small churches. So please don't misunderstand the podcast that I'm making today about being in some sort of battle between small and large churches. Uh, this model exists in both. However, how did we get to this one that we operate primarily in America today? Well, some of it is born out of the Protestant Reformation, out of the Protestant Reformation in which the church shifted from uh, a focus heavily on the sacraments and the Lord's Supper um, and that sort of thing, such as you saw with the Catholic Church in which um, you had something of a platform of all the priests performing all the different ceremonies of the church Um, and all the different rites of the church, and all the different sacraments of the church. Um, And when Luther and Calvin and all these guys uh, carried out the Great Reformation in the the 1600s, uh, 1500s, um, you saw a focus go away in the church from centering on sacraments to centering around preaching. Um, And predominantly you'll find in most Protestant churches, the place of the pulpit has a prominent spot, uh, and the layout of just about every church. If it's not uh, in the center of the platform, it's still at least in an elevated spot, um, and it definitely has attention drawn to it. Well, shift that to the the American frontier, uh, the founding of the United States back in the 1700s, and you had a little event called the Great Awakening. It happened not only in Great Britain, but it happened especially in America in which preachers like Jonathan Edwards and John Wesley and George Whitfield and a host of other preachers went around the countryside as kind of itinerant preachers um, speaking at church to church. And often speaking, outdoors and open fields. John Wesley, when he was especially, um, and George Whitfield, especially, when they would ride around doing their little circuit of preaching, um, they would just show up and start preaching in the streets, start preaching in the middle of fields. And thousands and tens of thousands of people would gather to listen to these men speak in the open air. And they weren't the only ones doing this, of course. There were many others, um, and it happened during their lives, and it continued happening after their lives with all the other ministers that were inspired by the same model of preaching that happened. And as these itinerant sort of preachers would go around from um, hamlet to hamlet, from town to town, city to city, state to state, country to country, uh, often they would gather, you know, a lot of people interested in them saying, Okay, we like what these guys have to say. We like their preaching. They've inspired us. Um, but we would like to build something off the groundwork that they laid in their preaching. And uh, so, in the process of having all these meetings and doing that sort of thing, they would start planting churches and org- organizing congregations um, centered around the preaching of that one minister. Um, and over time, as that itinerant minister, often like what you saw with um, the Methodist circuit riders and, and some of those folks. Um, but often what you would see is uh, these itinerant preachers, they'd move into one city, start preaching, and eventually they decided, okay, I, I can't keep riding around on a horse uh, for my entire life preaching from town to town. So eventually many of these ministers would settle down. Um, And permanent congregations would be installed, centered around the pastoral care that they would provide their churches. And you can read all about this sort of stuff in church history, by the way. And so that happened in the 17th, 18th centuries, going on to the 19th and 20th. And then when you start seeing uh, a second great awakening and you start seeing uh, a great emphasis on tent revivals um, and tent ministries happening in the United States... Um, We went from being a nation that had a bunch of traveling preachers on horseback to a bunch of traveling preachers who carried tents around with them. Um, And you saw this especially in the early Pentecostal movement um, in which, you know, somebody would set up a tent um, in the middle of the outskirts of town. um, And they would have like a seven week revival and they would pack in you know, tens, hundreds, thousands of people to their tent revivals. Um, And uh, this is kind of like how Billy Graham got his start, by the way. You'd have these massive tent revivals, and this carried on until the middle 1900s, um, in which, you know, again, you would have the same sort of pattern. You'd have somebody going around um, with tent preachers, um, and eventually they decided they wanted to settle down and not do tent-style, crusade-style preaching, and many would start churches that way. So, And again, when they would do this, the model was they'd move to a town, they'd set up a tent, that a tent would attract enough people, and enough people would like, I like what this guy has to say, I wanna show up every Sunday week after week to hear him preach. And that's more or less became the model that many uh, ministries built themselves off of, and frankly, that's a, a model of ministry that we haven't really gotten away from today. Much of what you see in evangelical churches today is rooted and built in with its model around um, this kind of itinerant preacher who sets up a church centered around him and his preaching. And that happens whether you're talking about the small country preacher, or whether you're talking about a pastor like John MacArthur out on the West Coast, or if I could bring East Coast local stuff to it, uh, Pastor Stephen Verdick here at Elevation Church uh, in Charlotte. Um, So, you know, no matter who you're talking about for the most part, no matter what denomination, whether it's Pentecostal, evangelical, charismatic, Baptist, what have you, um, that's more or less become the central focus of ministry today, that, that everything that happens, happens under the big tent of whatever the one minister is having to say. Um, and you saw this no matter if you're talking about, uh, Wesley Whitfield, um, you saw this with Spurgeon, you saw this with Amy Simple McPherson, um, you saw this with, uh, Billy Graham, you saw this with all sorts of people who had some sort of variation of this theme and how they operated and that just be kind of, kind, kind of etched into the DNA of our, you know, evangelical Christian experience. Uh, D.L. Moody, for example, when he would do his itinerant uh, open air tent preaching type stuff, when he would do it, he also enlisted uh, some really great singers to really kind of jazz up the show a little bit. And that kind of became a common thing, that you'd not only have a preacher or maybe even two preachers, um, and, uh, but you'd also have a great choir or a great singer and you'd have great music and you'd have this really hyped-up, exciting sort of atmosphere. Um, and, you know, again, we keep kind of doing this today where we build the church around a great preacher, a great singer, uh, a great choir, a great band, whatever, Um, It still kind of repeats itself today. And everything that happens in the center and the life of the church has to do with this one man and his uh, crew of people who help put on this great show. Um, And in many ways, I find this indistinguishable um, from the types of things that you see with P.T. Barnum and Barnum and Bailey's Circus. The greatest show on earth. At the end of the day, most of us probably go to churches that more or less have this as their uh, unspoken motto and theme. Some maybe even actually speak it overtly. But they come around saying, we have the greatest show on earth. Come to our church. Uh, I, I got a really good taste of that when I went to Elevation for a couple of years where, you know, everything was centered around Pastor Stephen and how Pastor Stephen was this amazing anointed speaker um, and he was really talented and had a great vision and leadership and blah, blah, blah. And, oh, man, did you hear the Elevation Church uh, worship choir band singing and and the latest album that they put out and and look you can get that one service piped and streamed all over the world into all the different campuses that like the I don't know ten or twenty campuses or whatever elevation has now you you have this model uh, even when it comes to you know multi-site church campuses that even at the end of the day the multi-site church still centers itself around primarily the preaching of the the one individual at the the mother church or the main church um, who. You know, the, the individuals become something of an evangelical pope type figure who gets to speak the most, who leads the most, and who, you know, everything ultimately lives or dies around. So our current models are basically the leftovers of all these great revival meetings that have happened in years past. And I feel like we haven't really critically thought about this. And now would probably be a good time for us to start rethinking these things as COVID-19 continues to be an issue that challenges the ability of the church to continue to meet based off these models that were established in the Great Awakenings of the 18th and 19th centuries and the revival meetings. Um, We need to start rethinking our obsession that we have with these large church gatherings where we pack as many people into one place as possible to listen to someone preach the latest and greatest message that is out there with the latest and greatest praise and worship band and the latest and greatest activities and all the circus show type stuff that happens. Their church can no longer, I believe, so long as this COVID-19 thing happens and you know threatens our ability to have massive gatherings and massive public buildings in places where a lot of people congregate together. Um, I think we need to challenge this model. Um, and instead of having um, the central uh, focus of the church be around the life and ministry of a pastor and his sermon and his singing, um, or the band that accompanies his singing, um, we need to challenge this for something, This mo- we need to challenge this model to have something rather that's a little bit more nimble, um, a little bit more humble, and dare I say, frankly, something that's a little bit more biblical. Because frankly, if you were to look at this model as great as it has been and as you know, much as God has actually used this model, if you were to actually get back to the pages of the New Testament, um, you would discover that, you know, Guys like John MacArthur and, and Stephen Verdick and, you know, whatever, as well-meaning as some of these individuals may or may not be, um, at the end of the day, they have built themselves off a model that I think is contrary to sound biblical doctrine. Um, and is something that they're probably not even aware of because so much in the church, uh, when it comes to church models, especially of the last century, has focused less on the theology of the church and the structures of the church because of that theology, but has rather been more of a, a sort of philosophy where we say, well, you know, we see a lot of flexibility in the way the early church met. And, uh, you know, it seemed like they were more concerned about pragmatics. And so we're going to be concerned about pragmatics. So, you know, we're going to pragmatically meet where everything centers around me and my vision, and my preaching, and all that sort of stuff. How convenient, by the way. Um, <laughs> um, so, like, it, it is interesting to, to see that's usually the the rebuttal to any sort of thing that I'm getting ready to say about the life and ministry of the church. Um, because, frankly, well, you know, we've got a lot of writing on that. Um, and, you know, it would change the way uh, of the life of, that the church cop, Currently operates on it would change life as we know it um, for the church if we were to challenge the models and frankly, you know we don't want to change those models under these even under these harsh circumstances of COVID-19 and the pandemic and and stuff involving the government we don't want to change these models because we've fallen so deeply in love with them and we can't imagine church without them. In fact, if if you'd never even darkened the door of a church in your entire life or you've only been once or twice. Um, You would probably have a pretty good idea of what Sunday morning should look like. You would probably sit there and think, well, you know, I've heard something about three songs and a sermon and an offering and calling it a day. Um, And, you know, that's more or less where most churches operate out of. You would expect to see, you know, a primary leader who speaks most of the time and who sets the vision and all that sort of stuff. Um, And again, while that stuff to some degree has been a good thing, I think it's something we need to challenge because, frankly, the biblical text... Just don't support it. Um, so I want to take a look real quick at some of verses that I would like to use to challenge this idea. I'm not going to attempt to sit here and dissect all the nitty-gritty aspects of how a church should be formed or what that should look like on a daily basis. But I do want to cast a general vision and theology of what it should look like and I believe a model that would also be more appropriate not only for the regular life of the church but especially a model of a life of a church during a pandemic because I don't believe the current models that we have centered around the one-man show are ultimately going to prove themselves to be very sustainable for a lot of people for a very long time and if this pandemic issue carries on more than a year or two I'm going to say that uh Simply as a result of churches probably going bankrupt, (laughs) Uh, this model is going to ultimately have to be rethought um, because, you know, people might be giving for a couple months uh, during a pandemic, but when they sit there and think, man, I've not been to church in a really long time and church in the traditional sense in a really long time, why am I giving to keep this show propped up anymore when I can just tune in to anybody on the internet (laughs) and see things? You know, we may see pressures like that if this pandemic should play out for a long period of time. And I would dare say we are probably already seeing uh, hints of that right now. So let me me look at a couple verses of Scripture. First, I want to read from Acts chapter 2, verses 43 through 47. And everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. They began selling their property and possessions, were sharing them all as anyone might have need. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day, those who were being saved. So this has kind of become a classic text on uh, the Book of Acts, chapter two, verse forty through forty. Through forty seven, after the day had of Pentecost had fully come, um, ha, glory! If I can throw some Pentecostal stuff in there, um, <laughs> uh, but you know this is a classic text. This is a text many people know very very well, and you see kind of a blended approach to life of the church. Um, not only do you see them having a communal sort of uh, relationship with their material possessions, which you know I think we could do a little bit better on in that regard. Um, but you saw that not only did they do that, uh, but they met day by day with one mind in the temple where they listened to the apostles preach. And then they also broke bread from house to house and taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart. So if you weren't familiar with uh, the temple, there was a big area where you know the apostles used to like to preach shortly after they saw Jesus. Um, they, didn't be, they weren't able to continue that long, though, because eventually persecution would drive them away from being able to preach day by day, uh, nonstop in the temple like they were on a regular basis. Uh, persecution eventually caused that to cease to exist. Um, but you also see not only did they have this larger gathering, but you also see that they were having something much more intimate as being something that they experienced on a regular basis. They were taking meals together from house to house and breaking bread, the Bible says. And that was their regular church experience. Well, let me ask you this. When was the last time you met with other believers on a regular basis as a Christian um, to get together, to break bread from house to house, um, to share some of your possessions together, and to, uh, you know, talk about the teachings of the apostles. I'm guessing that's probably pretty infrequent. Um, And you would probably see that, you know, that kind of is at odds with how we do things today, where we primarily gather together on a Sunday morning to listen to somebody speak, and then we may hit the buffet line after church, um, with uh, maybe a couple for folks that we go to church or we may have a a mid-afternoon, a mid-afternoon meal in a fellowship hall or something of that nature. But for the most part, you know, we keep it all centered around the big show. We keep it all centered around the circus. We may occasionally dabble in small groups or community groups, cell groups or whatever it is you want to call it, um, you know, throughout the week. Um, But for the most part, the idea of frequently meeting together with other Christians to eat dinner together and talk about Jesus is a concept that's frankly very foreign to us. Yet we read in Acts chapter 2 that this was at the heart of the New Testament church life experience with other believers. That they met not only in the temple when they could meet at the temple, but that they continued to meet house to house breaking bread Talking about the teachings of Jesus and the apostles, uh, praying and preaching and carrying on together in fellowship. And there's a reason for this. There's a reason for this. They didn't just do this because it was just convenient or it was just the overflow of ministry, and you know that was just something, you know, maybe even unique or circumstantial that they were doing and experiencing together. Um, but you also see in um, how this was really essential to the life of the church, not only because was that, not only because preaching was essential to the life of the church, but fellowship and spending time with one another, or quote-unquote, if we might use the modern vernacular, doing life together. <laughs> I wish we would retire that phrase, but you get the point, right? Um, where we see that it wasn't just important for them to listen to the preaching, but it was also important for them to actually spend time together um, and to get to know one another, to get to know one, well, one another well enough that they could break bread with each other and spend time just hanging out in each other's homes. Um, and you would find if you further study through the Gospels and the writings of the early church and, you know, archaeology and all that fun stuff, um, churches primarily met and continue to primarily meet in the homes of the individuals of the members of that church. Um, The church was very much centered around a living room type, dining room type environment. It wasn't centered around a platform in which a circus show was going on. Um, And you see this especially in 1 Corinthians chapters 11 through uh, 14, um, or I'm sorry, through 15, in which you see that the church regularly met To share a common meal together and then they had after their common meal or as part of their common meal experience a time where they kicked back and uh, some people would take turns prophesying some would take turns speaking in tongues some would take turns singing some would take turns teaching some would take turns doing this some would take turns doing that Um, and you see a church in which A church in which the life and ministry of the church simply happened out of the outgrowth of people simply spending time together. Ministry wasn't this big platform thing, even though there were times where there were platforms for people to speak extensively um, and things of that nature. But it wasn't just this big platform thing. It was this sharing together of one's life and simply spending time with other people. And in fact, we saw the Apostle Paul talked actually a lot about this. If you were to study the writings of the Apostle Paul um, and his 12 epistles, or 13 if you want to, you know, get uh, controversial, Um, but uh, his 12 undisputed epistles, so to say, uh, that bear his name, um, you know, you would see that. The Apostle Paul talked regularly, at least about a dozen times or so, in which he talks about modeling his life as an example for other believers as being essential to his ministry. He talked about it in uh, with the Corinthians, where he talked about being a father to them, um, and in 1 Thessalonians chapter one verses five through seven, in which he talked a little bit more about this. He talks about his ministry, and the gospel that he preached. And he says, Our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Just as you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake, you also become imitators of us, of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit so that you could become an example to all the believers of Macedonia and Achaia. So, you know, you see them not only having the big show with preaching in the temple and then meeting day to day, but you saw where the Apostle Paul talks about how his ministry was not to the church only in word only. Not just simply in preaching, but he said also in the power of the Holy Spirit with full conviction, and you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. And I would ask this question, how many of you know your Pastor. How many of you are known by your pastor? <laughs> you know, do you have a just casual relationship to your pastor? Is he just a guy who gets on a platform or that you see on a jumbo screen monitor or somebody that is piped in on the internet? And that's pretty much your only involvement with your pastor and your pastor with you is that you're a bunch of people sitting in pews or you're a bunch of people watching streaming online and you see him speak week after week and you have no knowledge of each other outside of we have this sort of formal, informal relationship thing going on um, in which he's on the pulpit and I'm in the pews and that's pretty much our level of interaction with one another. Apart from that, I don't really know what the man is like and the man does not know what I am like. Where the Apostle Paul talked about, though, in 1 Thessalonians Thessalonians 1, verses 5-7, through that he that the Thessalonians did not simply know the Apostle Paul through the words he had to say, but they knew him for the type of man he in fact was. And it says right here that they became imitators of him and the Lord. And that's, a, that's an encouragement you see regularly from the Apostle Paul, an exhortation you see regularly in his writings where he talks about being imitators of him. His congregations and the churches that he planted, they knew him not simply because he was this powerful preacher who wheeled, you know, who drove through town, popped up a tent, and then moved on to the next, but they actually got a chance to know the guy, to spend time with him. They spent enough time with him to become an imitator of him. That means they had to know the type of life he was living and the type of life he was living very well. Because it's kind of hard to become an imitator of something without having spent a lot of time uh, studying and hanging out and being with that person or that thing that you're trying to imitate. For example, if I'm wanting to imitate, let's say I were a comedian trying to do impersonations of famous people, I would sit there spending a lot of time studying the mannerisms of that person and trying to talk like them and trying to move like them, trying to blink like them to try to make my general gestures and and bodily motions like them, to sound like them with the inflection of my voice. Um, That takes a lot of time for a comedian, uh, an impersonator to pull off, somebody who's trying to imitate the mannerisms of somebody else. That requires a lot of study. And I would dare say that we as a church don't have that opportunity to study most of our ministers. To even get to, We barely even know their names to let alone what their lives are actually like. And the reason that we don't is because they forever remain on a pulpit, uh, on a pulpit in a platform on the screen. Um, and we don't actually get a chance to shake their hand, to dine with them, to spend time with them. And not only do we not get a chance to do that, but frankly, there doesn't seem to be any interest in many uh, to be that kind of person to be the type of person that we could imitate. I remember when I was in Bible college and seminary, I remember one of my professors distinctly talking about how he was proud that in the 20 plus years he had been a pastor, that not one of his parishioners had ever darkened the doorstep of his house. He never had one of his members over for dinner. Um, And he decided he needed to keep his personal life separate from his professional minister. Life, Because he said, if my people had a chance to see me as simply a common person, then I would lose the aura of my authority. I would not have this man of God in the platform sort of uh, exaltation in their mind. Um, And as a result, I could not effectively manage the church as a result of them knowing what I'm really like. They would see me for all my flaws and they would see me for all my humanity Uh, And they would say there's a discrepancy between this man and his message. Um, And, uh, you know, maybe we should find another pastor. (laughs) Or maybe we should find another church. Uh, Maybe we need to hire somebody else. And so in order to maintain his platform and his prestige amongst his parishioners uh, in the pulpit and in the pew, he created a distance between himself and his congregation. And frankly, that is something that almost goes without saying these days. And I will say, when I was in Bible college and seminary, most of the ministry that I focused and learned to do was not how to be a minister in the day-to-day grind of everyday life, but I learned how to be the trained circus monkey. I learned to be the guy banging on the pulpit. I learned to be the guy that organized and headed the committees. I learned to be the guy who ran the one-man show. So it's no wonder that many pastors and preachers today model themselves after this because that's what we're learning in Bible college and the seminary. <laughs> you know, so I don't fault these guys to some extent for following this busted model that we have from the leftovers of the Great Awakenings and the Revival Meetings and the Tent Meetings and, and all that sort of stuff that, uh, you know, happened in America and Great Britain and elsewhere in the world. Um, and the outgrowth of all that. I, I get it. I understand it. I was I, I, I myself used to think it was a great thing. Um, and I'm not still saying that it can't be a useful way of doing ministry from time to time. I think there is a place for a platform and preaching uh, and large shows <laughs> when it comes to the church. However, that should not be the life and heart of the church and the ministry and the way that we do things as a church. Because if it is, then when we have things like pandemics or when we have things like persecution, it's really hard for a church to, to not only survive but thrive during such times. Yet we read in the book of Acts that Day to day, they met with one another, breaking bread from house to house, having their meals with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. But we'd prefer just to have, you know, people getting saved every Sunday after they listen to the man of God preach and pound on the platform in the pulpit on his podium. I'm deliberately trying to use all the Ps, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) That's how you know it's anointed is when there's alliteration, right? Um, so, uh, you know, so that's very much at odds, um, with what we, the model we currently operate is very much at odds with what we see in the biblical model. Um, and you know, it was amazing to me and always stuck out to me and it was pointed out to me, uh, by, uh, uh, Watchman Nee, I believe it is, who was a great church planner in China who had to plant churches and houses because the government was cracking down uh, and officially persecuting Christians in the mid-1900s um, and making it impossible for them to have large outdoor gatherings and public buildings and things of that night. Uh, but, uh, you know, we read about in Acts chapter 20 to kind of piggyback off what we read in First Thessalonians where the Apostle Paul, he meets with the church at Ephesus and he shows up and he makes this, this passionate appeal to them because he's on his way um, to Jerusalem to be tried. Um, and he's on his way to you know, stand witness um, as a prisoner before Caesar one day and eventually even die as a result of being imprisoned. Um, but on his last visit to the church of Ephesus, in which he passed through on his way uh, to his final works, he gave a, a long speech uh, to that church. Uh, to the leadership of that church. And he said, Therefore, be on alert, remembering that night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. And now I commend you to God and the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all who are sanctified. I have coveted no one's silver or gold or clothes. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my own needs and the men who were with me. And everything I showed you that by working hard in this manner, you must help the weak and to remember the words of the Lord Jesus Christ, that he himself said it was more blessed to give than to receive. So, you know, I've always found this statement of Paul in Acts chapter 20, verses 31 through 35, very powerful, because he was able to sit there and appeal to these fellow ministers of his at the church in Ephesus To say, remember the three years that I ministered in your midst. Remember the three years that I did not cease to admonish all of you with tears in my eyes about following the Lord. Sit there and remember for those three years how that even though I did this, I continued to work bivocationally. I was ministering in the church, but then I was also holding a job on the side and ministering to my own needs and the men of those who were with me in his ministry. He says, and everything I showed you, that by working hard in this manner, you must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus. You know, I find that amazing. He, I, and it was pointed out that the Apostle Paul, he was a, a, a tanner. Uh, he, was, he was involved in leather, and he would have had to work with dyes and things of that nature um, in his tent-making ministry, so to say. And they said his hands would have likely been dyed, uh, maybe a purple or bluish sort of color from the interactions with the uh, the chemicals that he worked with. So imagine him standing up in front of this church and saying, remember that with these hands, these hands, these stained, dyed, purple, blue, whatever color they were, hands, I ministered to my own needs uh, for three years and you guys saw that. Imagine living so close to a minister and trying to imitate him and follow him that you're able to notice his work ethic and his job outside of the church. <laughs> Can you imagine that? Can you imagine that? And him being able to hold up his hands before your eyes and saying, "These hands ministered to my own needs. I wasn't a burden to anybody here. I, I I took care of myself. I didn't cover your your gold. I didn't cover your silver." You know, I kind of made my own way and, and did what was necessary so I wasn't a burden to the rest of you. And you guys got to see that. It's a bit different than the way we do things today, isn't it? We're the one-man show. <laughs> Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying all preachers are, are, are wealthy. I know plenty of preachers that are poor. Um, but, you know, there's very much this sense and rather the pre- preacher is rich or poor. That, um, you know, this one-man show becomes the basis of his financial security. So it's kind of no wonder that maybe, perhaps, this one-man show has kind of become hard to give up. Because our financial security, as ministers, is at stake. It's at stake if we walk away from the circus in which we're not in charge of... Everything that is going on, if we're not at the forefront, if we're not elevated on a platform in front of all the people in pews. So no wonder we have this obsession with this large church gathering in which we pack as many people into one place as possible to listen to someone preach. It's no wonder that has kind of become the model And I get it, you know, preachers have a right to get paid. They do. (laughs) They have a right to expect the support of the congregations that they minister to. But with that said, I can't help but wonder how much of a financial burden the church takes upon itself to do everything that it can to center its life around the ministry and platform of one individual. No wonder churches like John MacArthur's, which have 8,000 members, you know, have to continue to gather. (laughs) Because they've built such a massive platform, and they've built such a massive building to meet, in, and they have such massive staffing requirements, and, you know, everything that goes on with all that goes on in a church of that size and that, um, you know, uh, much of a show, you know, they kind of need to regularly meet and continue to meet as such. Because if, you know, like I said, if people were like, hey, it's been a year or two since I've actually been to the massive building to hear the man preach in the pulpit while he uh, bangs on his uh, podium, you know, if it's been a while, I might think about using my money in other ways. And I'm not trying to be like you know accuse or slander here these guys that say oh they're just money hungry hungry preachers and trying to get a hold of your 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 billfold although some of them are like Stephen Furtick. Um <laughs> but uh, and I say that in jest but I say that because it's also kind of true, um, but uh, I can't help but think you know how much of the activity that we do and continue to promote and try to make go on day to day happens just because at the end of the day, you know, these guys got mouths to feed just like you and I. Um, And as a result, the model has to keep going on for their own financial benefit. And I'm not saying, don't get me wrong, they're not all Stephen Furtick's. They're not all fleecing everybody and living in mansions and driving expensive Bentleys and things like that. Like I say, I know a lot of preachers who don't make very much money um, and live very humbly. So, I'm not trying to sit here and slam them, okay? Please, don't get me wrong. Um, But I can't help but think, you know, at the end of the day, how much of that still causes us to try to operate the models that we do. Instead of looking for a more biblical model, instead of looking for a model that's more nimble and a model that can adapt to the times in which we are living in and the times of a pandemic and the times in which the government has said, hey, you're not supposed to meet the out-of-public-health concerns, You know, as a result of not being able to think outside the box and get into a more biblical frame of reference, we continue trying to do the same show that we've been doing for a couple centuries now as a result of the theological leftovers that we've had from the great revival meetings and tent meetings of the past, in which everything becomes a one-man show centered around one guy and his preaching. What happens if we moved into a model that was less so? What happens if we moved into a model that said, hey, our church is going to be the church that meets in our backyard, or hey, it's kind of like when I uh, used to have the Taco Bell Church of God in which I met with uh, several high school students every week for a couple of years um, in which we met together at Taco Bell to talk about Jesus and the Bible and to, guess what, eat tacos (laughs) Um, as we shared our lives together uh, the best that we knew how. What happens if we move to a more nimble approach to ministry in which you know, we met in living rooms or we met in kitchens and we met in backyards and we did that? And if we actually had an opportunity to meet our pastor from time to time, what happens if our pastor just popped around from house church to house church to house church to house church? So he could be the type of individual that only not only ministers in word and through his preaching, but as somebody who is also able to demonstrate and share something of his life with others so that others can learn that life so well that they can imitate it and say, hey, this is being done in imitation of my pastor who's also doing a life in imitation of Jesus. Because that's what it's really all about at the end of the day, isn't it? Isn't it about learning to be more and more like Jesus? Well, how are we going to learn to be more and more like Jesus? All we do is hear a lecture for 30 minutes on a Sunday. There's a way of Christian life that we're supposed to live. And I think many of the problems that we have as the church, whether we're talking about racism or how we use social media or a host of other Problems that we have in the church today, whatever they might be, how much more might the gospel penetrate our lives if we also had men that could penetrate our lives with the examples that they demonstrate as living epistles, as living sermons, as a living gospel message? that puts flesh and blood on what is being preached on every Sunday morning so that they can show incarnationally what it is to be like Jesus, just even as Jesus was incarnational in our midst as God made flesh. Why can't we be more like that? Because I think if the, the more we become a just a circus show model, the more we're going to see the church kind of devolve into kind of the mess of stuff that we see happening in this country today. You know, I can't learn patience by hearing somebody preach about it. I can't hear and learn what it is to love my neighbor as myself just by hearing somebody talking about it. I need somebody in my life that can demonstrate patience. I need somebody in my life that can demonstrate love. I I need somebody in my life who can demonstrate what it is to have joy. One of the pastors I was listening to that was preaching at our church this morning online, he was talking about how he had to attend a funeral recently of his friend. His friend had lost their four-month-old child. Um, The child was born with a serious birth defect. They never thought the child would live to be born to begin with. And if it did, by some chance live through birth, that it would die within a couple days of being born. The child lived to be four months old. And this one pastor at my church, he was talking about how he got to go see um, this friend, even in the midst of pandemic. He went, he went to the funeral in Texas to be with his friend. And he said his friend gave a speech and his friend did it with great joy at the, the, the funeral of his four-month-old son. And he didn't know that a person could have such joy in the midst of such tragedy. Except for that his friend demonstrated what that joy was and what joy in Jesus was like. That there was a joy that exists beyond circumstance and the pleasantries of life. But that there is a deep joy, an abiding joy, and an abiding peace of God that exists even in the midst of turmoil and the death of a child. He's like, that's how he knew <laughs> the joy of Jesus is real. Because he could look at his friend and his suffering of the death of his four-month-old son and he could see joy. You're not going to be able to see that, folks. You're not going to be able to see that just by listening to somebody beat on a pulpit. We need individuals like the Apostle Paul who could say, you were with me in my sufferings. You saw what manner of man I was. You saw the life that I lived and you became imitators of us, and you pass that imitation of us on to others. That's the model we need as the church folks, a model that needs to exist not only in the good times of history in which there are no pandemics crippling America or other countries and parts of the world, but it's the model that we need for the bad times as well. The church is not a circus, folks, and we need to stop treating it as such. So everybody, this has been Jimmy Humphrey, Jimmy's Table.com, episode 71. I hope you've enjoyed it. I would love your feedback. You can email me, jimmy at Jimmy's Table.com. You can also reach out to me on Facebook and Twitter. If you go to jimmiestable.com, you can find links to my Facebook and Twitter page uh, there as well. Um, you know, if you've, if this message has stirred you, if this message has, you know, made you really think if this is message is something that you think somebody else should hear, I would highly encourage for you to share it with others, Sh- share it on social media, share it by email, you know, call up a friend and say, Hey, Jimmy's table.com where he's having conversations about faith, life and culture and sometimes food. You know, this guy has something to say and I think we need to consider hearing it. <laughs> um i hope this message has been a blessing to you um and that it's made you think um so be sure to share it if it has and if you haven't had the opportunity yet go to wherever this podcast is hosted at uh, be it on apple google stitcher spotify and all those places if it allows you to leave a five-star review at any of those places I would highly encourage you leave us a five star review and share how awesome this podcast has been <laughs> like I said last week don't leave it a, a, don't leave me some three star review I don't want your three star reviews I want your five star reviews uh, so help me grow this show by doing that again this has been Jimmy Humphrey jimmy's table.com where i'm having conversations about faith life culture and sometimes food take care everybody god bless and have a good one Air smudge.